Good evening. I don't know if you've experienced this or begun to, but uh, one of the things I love about practice is, is that the more that I practice, the more I see the Dharma everywhere. And so sometimes I quote from Broadway show tunes because mu musicals are a spiritual practice to gay men. <laughs> and so some of you may know uh, Jonathan Larson who wrote Rent, but before he wrote Rent, he, um, he wrote a um, semi-autobiographical musical called Tick, Tick, Boom. And there are two lines that as soon as I heard them, I said, Dharma. And uh, so the two lines are, why do we seek ecstasy in all the wrong places? Why is it hard to see that heaven can have simpler faces? And the, I remember when I heard those lines that it actually reminded me in my twisted sort of way um, of the Buddha's life. That the Buddha also sought um, freedom and ecstasy in all the wrong places before he came to the path that he began to offer us. It is representative in terms of the metaphor of the Buddha's life that he went from the extremes of this opulent, um, um, these opulent pleasures and having every need fulfilled, every desire fulfilled in his uh, first 20, 25 years of his life, living in these palaces um, in which it is said that the, the beds in the rooms were as large as this room. And then um, going into homelessness with the, with the desire to search for freedom and going into six years of this extreme ascetic practice going to the exact opposite extreme. And that his, his passage through his own spiritual journey was buffeted between these extremes of pleasure and um, asceticism. So someone wrote me a note um, wanting the second piece of the New York Times article that I read, which actually I was gonna fit in anyway because the first, the first half of that New York Times article was the blah, 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 if you remember, sort of all of the things that were unpleasant and dissonant. And so he writes, by the time I left, eating the food I had initially disdained ranked up there with above average sex. <laughs> I'm not exaggerating by much. When I first got there, I didn't understand why some people were closing their eyes while eating. By the end of the retreat, I was closing mine. I wasn't just living in the moment, I was luxuriating in it. Also, my view of weeds changed. There's a kind of weed that I had spent years killing, sometimes manually, sometimes with chemicals. On a walk one day, I looked down at one of those weeds and it looked as beautiful as any other plant. Why had, so, why had I so harshly judged an innocent plant? If this sounds crazy to you, you should hear how crazy it sounds to me. And as long as we're on the subject of crazy, there was my moment of bonding with a lizard. 
I looked at this lizard and watched it react to local stimuli and thought, I'm in the same boat as that lizard. Born without being asked to be born, trying to make sense of things, and far from getting the whole picture. And the crazy part, I kind of loved that lizard a little bit. So like the New York Times writer, we are buffeted as we come into the, the form of the retreat ourselves. The things that we like, the things that we don't like, the sadness, the happiness, the agitation in the sittings, the calm sittings. And as we continue to practice, we literally follow the Buddha's footsteps and his journey to that Bodhi tree to explore what really leads to freedom. What really leads to happiness? Is it, is it the pleasure? Is it the pain? And whether or not we have an explicit practice of equanimity, which is the main focus of tonight's talk, equanimity is practicing us. It's in the nature of the container of the retreat, really to stretch and hold all of our experiences. So the invitation is to use this this, this form, to use this experience, to use the last remaining days, to use the, the practice, the talks, the meditations, in order to internalize this experience of holding anything that arises. Because all the conditions ha- have tried to been, been, be offered to you to create that ability. One image of equanimity is um, sort of like riding the waves of the ocean. The immensity of the ocean is, is likened to be the immensity of our experiences, life experiences. The 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows are merely the waves of the ocean. And so like the waves of the ocean are not the ocean itself. So too, the joys and the sorrows are not the totality of our lives. We are so much more than just the waves. And so there are times in which there are a lot of waves and they can be very overwhelming. And then there's the calm, there's the peace. Can we be with all of that experience? We really quickly see these waves come up, whether it's the tranquility of some of our sittings or the, the focus in the, in the walking practice. And then the very next sitting, there's really strong emotions that arise, whether it's anger or whether it's a memory or whether someone butted in front of you in line at dinner and, 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 and there was a charge. 
These energies often are called the hindrances, which I know have been mentioned earlier in the retreat. The, the energies of desire and aversion, the energies of restlessness, and then uh, the opposite, the sleepiness or the sloth and the torpor, and the energy of skeptical doubt. So really to um, see if it's possible to, see, as these energies arise, to simply feel them as energies, as opposed to um, uh, pieces of ourselves. Feeling, feeling the energies in the body first, that's the invitation. And seeing if there is a, just like the breath, when it arises, what is the length of, of this energy? and just watching it as it begins to change. Sayadaw Utejaniya, who is one of the um, newer um, Burmese teachers that are, that's coming to the West, um, has a phrase of making friends with these energies, making friends with the hindrances, as opposed to being frustrated, being, um, um, being judgmental of ourselves, of the energies themselves, that they shouldn't be here. He invites us really to get to know them. And in the getting to know them is simply meeting them with mindfulness. It's not a, a searching, it's not, a, it, it's not an analytical process of getting to know. It's simply meeting them and seeing what they are. There's a, a Rumi poem that very sort of speaks to this invitation so uh, poignantly. Uh, I, many of you have heard this, but it, it's so relevant to this particular subject. This being human is a guest house. Every morning a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor Welcome and entertain them all. Even if there are a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house, empty of, its, of all its furniture, still treat each guest honorably. They may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice, meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. So another aspect that is helpful when these energies that seem like obstacles, that seem like um, uh, uh, things that are, are um, uh, impeding the actual mindfulness practice is, is that sense of dimensionality that I alluded to in one of the question and answer periods. That along with um, the um, ability for mindfulness to be very uh, narrow and focused as well as broad and telescopic and expansive, that there's the dimensionality of foreground and background. And so um, recently, um, um, 
I was at a restaurant uh, with my family and um, it was a very, one of those noisy restaurants. Uh, I think that some of these restaurants are designed to just get you in and get you out and they designed the interior to make it uncomfortable. But um, there was also a, a, a young infant in, in the restaurant and it was bawling. I mean, it was just crying. And I could feel that as more and more people entered the restaurant for the meal and it got louder and louder and louder, the baby's cries got louder and louder and louder too because, they, because the baby was getting more and more upset. This is sort of like our mind when the hindrances first arrive. We are fighting it. But my, my, uh, what I noticed about the restaurant is that the, the adults were still having their conversations. The noise had gone into the background of their consciousness. It wasn't eliminated. They didn't get rid of the noise. The reality of what was arising still was arising, and yet they were, their ability to pay attention and focus on the conversation in the, in the foreground was not within the infant's capability. So we begin as we mature into our, our mindfulness to be able to play with this foreground background even when things that we might consider to be disturbing or unpleasant arise. It's not about getting rid of thoughts. It's not about getting rid of the hindrances. It's simply about navigating them skillfully. And part of that, that ability to hold all of your experience, including the hindrances, is this evenness of mind that equanimity invites us into. That's one of the definitions. An evenness, this balance. Upeka is the Pali word for equanimity, which, is, which can also mean to look patiently at. Look patiently at. So as our lives get like bounced around, as your meditation gets bounced around between the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows, you know, it's as we vibrate between these experiences, we have a sense as we become more and more aware of this that there is something that is possible to hold all of it. And so this balancing is not unlike riding a bicycle. You know, you, you first get on the bike and you fall down. And you get on the bike a second time and you fall down again. But eventually, you know, you are kind of um, riding the bicycle, but are you ever really balanced? But are you always making these micro adjustments in terms of creating this thing that we call balance? We're always going back and forth. There's always movement. Jesse Jackson says, you may not be responsible for getting knocked down, but you certainly are responsible for getting back up. So that's the balance of our life, just trying to get back into that awareness of 
the larger picture that can hold all of our experience. Seeing things as they arise with an attitude of non-reactivity, of, of simply meeting the moment for what it is. Coming back to that invitation over and over again in different forms. The, as, the, um, uh, as the loving kindness and the compassion practice often has phrases that, that, that we use to remind ourselves um, the, w some of the phrases that I like to use are, life is but a play of joy and sorrow. May we remain undisturbed by li life's rise and fall. But our culture, our larger sort of milieu that we live in, is so conditioned to living in extremes. There is a clothing store in San Francisco that um, last year had a banner emblazoned over their, um, their windows, their window display, and it said, moderation kills the spirit. <laughs> we ha you know, there's very few cultural supports for living this balanced life, this middle way that the Buddha is is offering to us. And in fact, uh, you know, my own experience and my own perception is that we're really good, of course, at living the peak experiences, the joys. And we're actually really good at living the lows. You know, we, you know, we sometimes can wallow in that place or sometimes when we are in that, that, that bottom space, there's actually something to do you know, what I don't see us, and my, I include myself, you know, doing that well is living this whole spectrum in the middle. When we live in the, in the highs or the lows, what gets conditioned is what sometimes is called all or nothing thinking. It's one way or the other. And this came up in an interesting way in one of the group um, meetings because one of the practitioners were, was talking about um, um, working really hard or, or, or exerting a lot of effort in the meditation. And when they, when they um, uh, release that effort a little bit, then the sense of, feeling lazy came in. That unless there was a huge amount of effort being um, uh, exerted, then they felt lazy. Whereas actually there's a whole spectrum in between those two experiences. And, and, if, um, and if it's only one or the other, it really limits as to um, how to move through these experiences. Being sort of balanced and, and moving in the middle path is 
uh, one more example from our culture. I don't know if, if um, some of you have had this experience, but in the democratic primaries of the last presidential election, when um, Obama and Clinton were uh, campaigning against each other, personally, I went back and forth. You know, I, it was not clear to me in the beginning um, who my eventual preference would be. And so I found myself, as I was exploring one candidate, that I needed to make the other candidate wrong. That I, it had nothing to do with my exploration of the other candidate. It just, you know, I just noticed this, this, this automatic polarization. And then something happened and I would explore the other candidate and all of a sudden the other candidate became wrong. And it was really hard. So it took me a long time to figure my way out through that particular process because nobody else, you know, everybody else was basically taking sides. So this, the traditional far opposite of equanimity is the reactivity to extremes as opposed to the non-reactivity, as opposed to simply meeting the experience for what it is. And this is where that practice of Vedana that I had, some of us had mentioned earlier in the retreat, the noticing the pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral characteristics of any experience that arises. The Buddha said, where, is there, where there is attachment to the pleasant or aversion to the unpleasant, Liberation is just not possible. And, and just meeting that experience and just noticing the flavor. It's not about noticing every moment necessarily pleasant, 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 unpleasant, unpleasant. It's really just noticing the flavor of what's arising and that gives you a little bit of space because the mind usually as we've said before, will push away unpleasant experiences automatically or want more of pleasant experiences. And with neutral experiences, we just don't even have any consciousness. We get bored. The mind falls away. So this, this aspect of noticing these characteristics just helps the mind, um, I think Pat was saying, uh, catch ourselves earlier. Catch ourselves earlier before we fall into either the greed or the aversion, both of which will, will create suffering. So this, this, this reactivity to extremes and this inability to stay in, the, in the, this middle range of experience, which the Buddha called contentment. So he gave one of his last teachings in the, um, uh, in, in, in the Mahayana Sutras, it's called the Santitagatha, and it's called the Instructions for the Rich. You who want to escape from all the various afflictions must contemplate what it means to know satisfaction. For people who do not know satisfaction, 
It does not suit their fancy, even if they're in heaven. People who do not know satisfaction are poor, even if they're rich. People who do know satisfaction are rich, even if they're poor. It really is the invitation to explore what is contentment? So, um, some of the invitations that are offered in the meditations are, are um, uh, guides towards that practice. So just noticing how the sitting is, not needing to be any different than, than, than it is. Uh, we haven't really offered the eating meditation practice, but one of the invitations of the eating practice is to stop eating your meal five bites from full. Well, that's interesting. How do you do that? You can only do that when you're aware. When you're aware that, um, that oh, I'm, I'm approaching that place. Because our usual behavior is to eat way beyond five bites from full, right? So at what point in time are your needs met as opposed to um, acting out what you want? There's a difference between the level of need versus our levels of want. And so five bites from full, you know that you're not going to starve. You have everything that you need. And it's that interesting exploration of, of the difference between uh, how little we actually need in order to live a happy life. So just stop for a moment and explore what do you not need right now? in this moment. Just see if there's anything that comes to your mind. And then the inquiry is, how deeply can we live into this teaching? What would your life be like if you were not only content with the material things in your life, but also about how your life actually is being lived. What would your life look like if all of who you are is completely good enough, sufficient, and content in this moment? We have so many core issues, both personally and, and culturally, around not feeling good enough, about not looking good enough, about not doing good enough in the world in our work, about not being good enough in the world. All this wanting more and more and more. Can we really be content where our life is? Uh, Winnicott, one of the psychologists in the 60s, I think, proposed this concept of a good enough parent. He actually said, I think, 
that a good enough parent is actually is, is creates a better parenting situation than a quote unquote perfect parent. But what would it be like to live a good enough life for us to have internalized that experience of a good enough parent, which we always do, we always internalize our parents, and live a good enough life that what we do in the world is good enough that we're doing the best that we can. So when that feeling or that exploration of contentment arises, the invitation is really to feel it, really to get to know it. How does it feel as a physical experience, contentment? Maybe the word can trigger even some physical sensations right now. What are the emotions that may come along with that either experience or invitation into contentment? And really not to um, overlook that there may be thoughts of contentment. What are thoughts of contentment for you? Contented thoughts sounds pretty happy to me. So Contentment helps us stay in this middle ground between these extremes, between feeling that we're completely not sufficient or adequate, or in the, in the type eight mode of needing to be someone that we're not. And so just being curious of this middle ground, sometimes, you know, it's very neutral territory. So, um, there was a recent exhibition in, in one of the San Francisco museums of uh, 19, the 1960s um, uh, art revolution. And this quote actually, again, this is Dharma anywhere, right? Dharma anywhere, anytime, any place. And it's a quote from Andy Warhol that I thought was so interesting to explore. He says, because he, he's the guy um, that did all the Campbell soup cans and the repetition of Jackie Onassis's face and, and Elizabeth Taylor's, you know, portrait in these large canvases. He says, I've been quoted a lot as saying, I like boring things because of the repetition. But that doesn't mean I'm bored by them. Because the more you look at the same thing, the more the meaning goes away and the better and emptier you feel. I thought that's, I think that's a fascinating invitation into that experience of, of what we would normally consider neutral or boring. And again, you know, our, our culture is so conditioned to satiating the extremes of the wanting mind and really to be unaware of the consequences so some of you may have um, seen this video on YouTube because it's 
had like two million, million hits in two months. But um, uh, it's called Everything's Amazing and No One's Happy. <laughs> and it's by this comedian, Louis C.K. And so this is a short transcript from it. He says, I was on an airplane and there's high-speed internet on the airplane. That's the newest thing I know that exists. And I'm sitting on the plane and they go up, you open your laptop and you go on the internet. And I know that Pat just trashed the internet. And it's fast and I'm watching YouTube clips. It's amazing, I'm in an airplane. Then the internet breaks down. And the guy goes to me, Ugh, this is bullshit. Like how quickly the world owes something to him that he knew existed only 10 seconds ago. <laughs> this, is the, this is the progressive conditioning of wanting more and more and more. It's the inability to be content. And the consequence of that craving and desire is that it can never be satiated. All craving, all craving is the craving for no craving. All craving seeks that plateau of satisfaction, of contentment. So one of the more extreme examples of this is, is the high of chemical addiction. We, you know, in the midst of addiction, we seek that high that we want to be permanent. It's, it's a diluted permanence, but, you know, we want it to last, and yet it still crashes. It is only temporary or fleeting, but satiating any craving doesn't create real satisfaction. So why? Why doesn't satiating desire create satisfaction? Because the craving of desire has no insight. It has no wisdom. It does not have the ability to see the second noble truth, which is craving and desire are the cause of suffering itself. Only awareness and mindfulness has the ability to cultivate that insight. And just as the mind can be conditioned to be unaware, craving, and reactive, so the mind can be conditioned to be aware, content, and equanimous. We think that our freedom from wanting is dependent on the object of our desire. If we get that object, we'll be happy. Actually, our spiritual freedom is dependent on our internal experience, which means our relationship to our experience, which means our relationship to wanting and that, that sense of desire. Freedom is not about getting the object to satisfy the desire. The door to freedom is exploring desire itself. So the invitation is when that, when that, when that energy of wanting or desire arises, see as the mind reaches out for the object, 
See if you can drop the object and be with the wanting itself. Just turn the mindfulness closer to your experience. Just allow yourself to relax to what is actually arising. The object is not actually arising. It's the desire, it's the wanting, it's the craving that's actually arising. So how does the wanting of the meditation to be different? Maybe it's agitated and you want it to be tranquil. How does that feel in relationship to the wanting of the satisfying of hunger of the next meal? Or possibly the, um, the desire for a certain kind of relationship that you might have, or the desire for the body to be a certain way, or the desire for the retreat to be over. Really dropping the objects and looking at the experience of wanting. Because the, exp the awareness of the experience, as we've said before, is not the experience itself. The awareness of the desire is not getting lost in the desire. And so when we're aware of what arises, automatically there's a larger picture. There's a spaciousness because we're not lost in it. And that's the beginning of the even, creating that evenness of mind to hold all of your experience. On another retreat, not unlike this one, um, uh, it was actually a, a four-day retreat. And on the second day, one of the practitioners said in an interview, I discovered this whole world inside of myself that I just never knew about. That whole world that arises that we just never knew about, that we didn't see or took for granted, that's a whole world that can hold all of our experience with kindness, with this evenness of mind. Equanimity invites us into a direct, intimate relationship with our experience, just to perceive it patiently. Patience, acceptance, non-attachment, So you may or may not like what I'm actually describing about equanimity. And if you disagree with it or you don't like it, can you be okay with that right now? Or do you find yourself wanting to change the trajectory of the talk? Just sitting with discomfort begins to break the cycle of suffering. Just meeting the discomfort for what it is, and whether it's the body sensations, whether it's the difficult emotions. Sitting with discomfort is such a worthwhile practice if it's done with compassion and kindness, which is inherently in the mindfulness practice.
So unlike this platform, which has a really nice padding on it, the platforms in which you sit on in Thailand are cement. <laughs> and there's no such thing as a zafu or zabutan. There's a sitting cloth, <laughs> a piece of cloth. And so you put the cloth down and you sit on it. The Dharma talks are about three hours long. <laughs> and I don't understand Thai. <laughs> Sitting in those Dharma talks was not easy. It was not comfortable. And there was a larger, I know that there was a larger experience that I was receiving. It was a worthwhile practice. So, you know, in our practice here, we have many versions of that, you know, the noise in the room. Do we want the windows open? Do we want the closed? <laughs> What's the temperature like, the humidity? Problems with the rooms, problems with the roommates. Someone's breaking silence. Maybe you even heard things in the talks that you had problems with. And in spite of all of that, is there freedom? Is there a place of still calmness in the midst of all the swirl, in the midst of even a storm? What are the conditions of your freedom? Are there any prerequisites? And who would you be without those prerequisites? Because there are none. So, um, so as I began my practice in um, different meditation centers, um, I really didn't see myself reflected as a person of color, as a gay man. And um, I just sat in those situations and I really wanted the room to be different. I really, I suffered. I wanted everybody to be like me, which, it just wasn't there. And I spent a lot of time, both emotionally, it was, it was creating, uh, it, it was painful physically. I wanted, I wanted my reality to be something other than it was. And I actually did leave the room. There were some retreats that I just couldn't tolerate what was coming up internally. And on hindsight, what I so appreciate, even though, you know, the efforts may have been imperfect, I so appreciated the teachers and the centers for holding that space and that container so that I could return. Because that's the larger picture. Because even if I left once, I could return and it became easier over the time. And what this practice has offered me over time was the ability to practice in spite of any suffering that arose and that I could receive the Dharma anywhere from anyone 
under any condition. And in that receiving, there's just a relaxation. That's the larger container of the retreat form that was able to allow me to hold even that experience. And of course, you know, I thought that things were unfair and, uh, you know, I wish that our world were different, that, that, the, that, that our larger culture wouldn't come into the meditation hall. And, you know, there's unfairness in the world. And is that a prerequisite to my freedom? Does freedom depend on life being fair? This phrase, this sentence uh, resonates with me over and over again in deeper and deeper levels that true freedom does not mean being in a place where there is no problem struggle or difficulty. It means being in the midst of all of those things and still being free in your heart. So even if we're dissatisfied with something, can we be satisfied with that? Can we be satisfied with either dissatisfaction or satisfaction? Can we ride these waves of the ocean? this practice of, of not reacting, of not having a preference in this moment. Equanimity is not the end of the conditions that cause difficulty or pain. Those conditions actually may take a lot of time to create some change. But in spite of those conditions, there can be and are moments of freedom if our awareness is there, if we are inviting our awareness to be with us. So the traditional death, um, description of the near opposite of um, equanimity is this experience called indifference or apathy. You know, there's a distance, there's a, there's a detachment. So equanimity is, is, is the ability to be non-attached, but fully engaged. You're living your life, you're not separate from. But the indifference part, there's a separation. There could be a, a sense of, you know, um, better than, we have a, a word that uh, I'm guessing most people in this room have used that expresses this energy of indifference really well. Right? Whatever. You know, it's like a, it's, it's like, it's like, you know, totally like ignoring the experience. So, um, how often does that get used in our conversations? Whatever, whatever it is, you know, and you just turn away. So there's a, um, um, there's this place on the internet called the Urban Dictionary and I, lo I looked up this word whatever 
And it gives you colloquial definitions of this use of the word along with the intonation, you know, sort of that scornful intonation. And so uh, the, some of the people wrote, it means, I just don't care. Another person wrote, nothing you say or do could make you matter to me. Third person, I am actually upset you are stealing my air. There was a school in London that um, actually got concerned because so many kids were using it as a diss. You know, they were saying it to their teachers. And, and so they were trying to create a, a solution to, um, um, you know, around it. And one teacher, I, I love the solution, one teacher said, um, just hug them. Just hug them. And it goes back to what Tara said in her last talk about, can we care about not caring? So when the indifference arises, can we be there for that too? Can we, can we not be attached? Can we be non-attached but fully engaged? We think that when we're not non-attached, that that's the same as detachment. And I just want to make that distinction because we can pay careful attention, not be caught. And if we pay attention, we deeply care to see the truth, to accept the things that we cannot change the courage to change the things we can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And that's maybe the serenity prayer. That's also equanimity speaking, as the non-reactivity as an activity. And that the activity that emerges, emerges from the wisdom and kindness of non-reactivity. Equanimity is not a passive practice. It simply asks us to be patient. As short as life is, it often takes much longer to do the things that need to get done in life. And equanimity allows us to hold that space for that process to unfold. So I... um, have been sort of, you know, it's not unlike a life review, but as, you know, I gave you that story around my father's passing, and I've been reviewing aspects of his life that that have meaning to me, and um, one of them that is, um, that my brother had forgotten, and I had related to him, was that um, for much of the 1950s and early 60s, when he was first coming into his academic career as a professor, it was during the Joseph McCarthy era and all of that stuff, he was, his compensation was always about 25% lower than the rest of the faculty. Um, and, And basically that was due to racial discrimination. And 
all through that time, he, it, it caused him to need to um, um, get two and three jobs in order to you know, make ends meet for our family. But then he became the department chair. And that's when it changed. That's when he was able to change that policy. I'm not sure that I could have that patience because I know that in the multicultural work I do, I often don't. But it just is um, revelatory to me to remember that that kind of patience and that kind of um, ability to hold that space is possible. Whether it's on a personal level or a communal level, equanimity provides that space so that our actions can have a greater chance of benefiting and not causing harm. Because how often have we seen suffering in the world and gone to fix it and then actually made it worse? Because it's that space, it's that space that, that both mindfulness and equanimity allows us to create some insight as to what to do next. I know that some of you are engaged with sort of the difficult and hard work of social justice and social transformation. And often uh, the challenge that confronts that work because it is so difficult and hard is that often we become difficult and hard. That our hearts become um, um, defended and protected. Equanimity is the invitation to sustain and care for yourself while we're caring for the world. The Buddha described a mind filled with equanimity as abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility, without ill will. So the words that I would associate with that, that sort of have uh, woven through our retreat are with abundant, I would associate contented. With exalted, inspired. Immeasurable, unconditional. Without hostility and without ill will, gentleness and kindness. Can we start with ourselves? Can we start with ourselves being contented, inspired, unconditional, gentle, and kind. After spending six months in Thailand, um, the last month, I really wanted to visit some of the senior women teachers and 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 um, uh, monastics uh, because they are under the cultural radar because it's so patriarchal a society and, and a lineage of practice. Um, 
And so I sought out um, Venerable Dhammananda, who was ba- he w- who was the first fully ordained nun in Thailand. Um, uh, the nuns order had died out many hundreds, a thousand years ago, and um, there are many efforts trying to bring it back into um, uh, a viable form for um, women to practice. And, and she is one of the pioneers as a Thai woman in a culture that just does not support um, the equality of women. And so I wanted to meet with her because I wanted to learn from her how she met the challenges of this incredibly patriarchal society so that I could also maybe uh, learn how I can deal with my own issues that come up within being in the mainstream culture that's different from my cultural of origin. And so I was describing, you know, um, uh, that that kind of multicultural work in 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 our in the Western culture, and asking her how does she sustain herself, um, and and how does she move through these obstacles. And she said something that I kind of sort of knew, but coming from her, it was really this transmission because I knew what her life experience had been like. She said. The greater the challenge, the greater the fire. The greater the fire, the greater the purification of the heart. She said that while external liberation may not happen in her lifetime, her internal sense of freedom is not dependent on whether it does or does not happen. That is spaciousness in the fire, an evenness of mind. She doesn't have any expectations of changing that patriarchal system, and yet simply by being who she is, it's changing. And since I've seen her, which was a couple of years ago, um, there are not now several dozen um, women that, that have followed her and, and, um, and it is changing that the face of, of that practice. The last story I'll end with is um, a story about a guy named Billy Mills. I don't know if any of you are familiar with him. He is an Ogallala Lakota Indian raised on the Pine Ridge Reservation. And, and as you might imagine, it, his childhood was in extreme poverty. But um, um, what was also part of his experience is that his mother died of cancer when he was eight. And then his father passed away from a stroke when he was 12. And as a, as a really young boy, um, he turned to sports to release his grief and anger and, and loss. And so he took up running in a boarding school in, in Kansas. And when he was a, a junior at the University of Kansas, he made the NCAA All-American three times. And at that 
at the ending of that third time, uh, they were gathering people to have this photograph. And he was told to leave the photograph because he was Native American. And he relates this incident, almost um, pushed him on the brink to commit suicide. But there was a voice in the back of his head that said, persevere. He, I, my recollection is that he identifies that voice as his father. Three years later, he went to win the 10,000 meter race in the 1964 Tokyo Olympics. And no other American has won that gold medal before or since his, his, um, uh, his victory. And he writes, I asked for wealth that I might have power. I was given poverty that I might have my inner strength. I asked for fame so that others would know me. I was given obscurity that I might know myself. I asked for a person to love that I might never be alone. I was given a life of a hermit that I might learn to accept myself. I asked for power that I might achieve. I was given powerlessness that I might learn to surrender. I asked for health that I might lead a long life. I was given infirmity that I might appreciate each moment. I asked Mother Earth for strength that I might have my way. I was given weakness that I might feel the need for her. I asked to live happily that I might enjoy life. I was given life that I might live happily. I received nothing I asked for, and yet all my wishes came true. There is freedom in his words, despite any external conditions. Despite external conditions, he has created this beautiful life. And that is true for each of us in this room. Each of us has suffered. Each of us has met the truth of the first noble truth. And despite that, we create these beautiful lives. And the more we are aware, the more we are mindful, the more precious this beautiful life becomes. I hope you know, I hope you can feel that simply by being here, you have come so far in your practice of mindfulness and equanimity. And even though you may not feel that, you may not feel that mindful in the moment or equanimous in the moment, you are because you haven't left. You are allowing all that experience to be held. Pleasant, unpleasant, pleasure, pain, judgment, non-judgment. You're creating a beautiful life here. And that beauty also can be called freedom.
Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.